Good morning, family. Thank you, Leticia. Uh, before I get to share the word, we're very privileged to have uh, our missionaries, Stefan and Christiana from Lesotho, and a team of 11 of their leaders that are here for ministry training with us. Where are they? I want them to stand quickly. We can just say welcome to them and pray. Yeah, they are. They're sorry. So great to have you with us. And uh, welcome. Nice to see you, Stefan, Christiana. Nice to see you. And may the Lord bless you in your time here in sunny South Africa at the moment. So bless you. Welcome. Welcome. So nice to have you with us. Please, as Letitia said, uh, join us this morning. We normally have the uh, Connect Lounge after the service for new visitors to come, but because today we're doing the baptism, we, please just join us for that. It's going to be a, a great time of celebration. You know, baptism is a public event that we do to publicly declare our love for Jesus. So it's wonderful to celebrate those journeys with people uh, that are going to be baptized this morning. Um, this morning, I'm starting with our new series, and which is, it's more than a series for us. It's a bit of the focus that we felt the Lord say to us to have for this year. So we've entitled it Love Revolution. And uh, through this time, we want to consider how the reality of the love of God changes the world. And we're going to do that through series and other things that we were doing this year to make sure that our response to the Lord is a response of love and because He loved us first. So today I'm going to start, and for the next three weeks, I'm going to be speaking from 1 John chapter 4, which is a great chapter and a, and a great epistle where John writes about love, and we're going to be spending some time uh, uh, just looking through that scripture. I don't know about you, but what would you think would be some of the greatest discoveries or, or inventions that has happened in human history? Different people have different ideas of what they think are the greatest discoveries or inventions. Somebody would say that the greatest discovery is when we discovered fire. That changed the human uh, reality and condition in, in terms of our experience here on earth the most is when we discovered fire. Others would say, no, it was when the, when the wheel was invented or discovered. I don't know if something rolled down a hill and then somebody went, hey, that's a wheel. Or if it was purposefully invented, we don't know. Anybody was there that day? I don't think so. So uh, the wheel, somebody said. Others would say the nail, you know, the nail, the thing that you hit into wood is one of the greatest discoveries that had the most impact on, on our lives as humans. The compass, the printing press, I, I, that would be on the, one of the top of my list, the printing press, because that made knowledge and the spreading of knowledge possible. Some would say, no, it's the internal combustion engine. Thank God for that. The telephone. The transistor, penicillin, it's a great discovery, or, and, 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 and the, some would say the microchip, or the internet. There's so many great things that we can say, really, when those things came about, it changed our lives. I, of course, think that one of the greatest ones happened around 500 before Christ. Is one in, in Iraq, when Persian royalty discovered that you could take ice and flavor it. Literally, this is what happened. And ice cream came about. This is the first, earliest they can trace ice cream to. And then the Egyptians and the Chinese and everybody got involved. And today we have so many different varieties and flavors. But I think it literally changed the world. Thanks to the Persians for introducing. Okay, all jokes aside. What would you say is the discovery, perhaps, that has had the greatest impact on your life and that has changed your life the most. I would like to say that it's for me personally, it's the day I discovered that Jesus loves me. 
It's the discovery that I've made that has had the greatest impact in my life. That has changed the most practically the reality of my life. And I think it's the truth for the human race. It is the greatest discovery we can make in terms of something that has the greatest impact on us is when we discover the love of Christ for us. Well, this certainly is what the writer of the epistles of John believes. Uh, I don't know how many of you have spent time in 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John. These epistles were written, mostly we believe it's sort of 90% certain that they were written by the John the Evangelist, the same person that wrote the Gospel of John, one of the disciples of Christ, that he wrote these three books. And if you go read them, two of them, John 2 and John 3, are actually personal letters that he writes to somebody about certain things. And 1 John, they say, is more a sermon than what it actually is a book. Uh, it doesn't have the structure that you would normally have. It's like he takes a bunch of things and he talks around a certain point, And from that point, he touches different things. So as I like to do, because it really helps me, I want to give you just a, a little bit quickly the historical context for the writings of the book of John. And I, I don't share these things because I, you know, I'm, perhaps I'm a little bit of a, a, a history nerd in that way, but not just because they're interesting, but really because I think it helps us to make sure that the Scripture is not some abstract theory, but that we know that from its inception, it was actually about dealing with real problems that people were facing. So John, as he refers to himself, is John the Elder in this portion of Scripture. He's now an older gentleman. He's in a position as an overseer of some of the churches around Ephesus, probably more smaller churches that he has been asked to look after. To, to have an apostolic sort of role over them, to keep an eye on them. And uh, because he's older, he can't travel all that much, so he's writing letters, but we also know that he did still, when he could, go and travel and go see some of these churches. And he writes to them because he's concerned about something that's happening in their time. This is probably 90 years of, uh, 90 AD uh, or 100, so it's about 70, 60 to 70 years after uh, Christ that this portion of Scripture is written for us. So it's, it's right in that very important transition period between the first generation of followers of Christ that saw Christ, that walked with Christ, that had the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and these guys are now getting older and ladies, and they're starting to move on to heaven, and now it's moving into this transition of the second generation that has to take over from them. And so the church is going through an important time change because no longer, very soon from then on, they will no longer have any people with them that were eyewitnesses to Christ. And John is writing because he's concerned as he's seeing some people are being lured away from the Christian faith and following some false doctrines. So when you read the book of John, you'll see how he talks about false teachers quite a lot. And he talks about how do you know if somebody's a false teacher? What do you do with somebody that's a false teacher? As he encourages these communities to keep the faith and to keep strong because it's so important that the gospel moves well from one generation to the next. If you, how many of you know that if they didn't do it well, we we wouldn't have the gospel today. And so the gospel has to move from one generation to the next. But this being from the eyewitness generation to the generation that will no longer be the eyewitnesses is an important transition. One of the challenges they were facing is there was a, a growing group of teachers that were teaching something that John found very problematic. And this is what they, they basically taught. These teachers were going around and they were telling the, the Christians and, the, and, and, and in these small churches where they were received, they were saying, 
that though they believed in Jesus and they believed that he was the Messiah, they don't believe that Jesus was God in bodily form. What we would call they did not believe in the incarnation of Christ. They basically believed that yes, there was a man, Jesus Christ. But they had ways of saying that that man was not God in human form. So they had theories like this, where they said, the, the, the person that we called Jesus wasn't really God incarnate. He looked like him, but it was a little bit of a trick that God did. He wasn't really God in human form. He just looked like it. Or they had this theory, for instance, one of the theories, there were a number of theories, is that there was a man named Jesus, and he did walk the earth, but he wasn't God. But the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism. So when Jesus was baptized, remember, and the, and the voice came from heaven, and the voice said, this is my beloved son, they believe at that moment the Spirit of God came upon Jesus, and Jesus became the Christ. He wasn't Christ before then. He wasn't born Christ. He became Christ when the Spirit of God came upon him. And they believe the Spirit of God lived on Jesus, therefore the, all the miracles and all the things that happened, until Jesus, just before he died. So somewhere in the Garden of Gethsemane or somewhere around there, the Spirit of Christ left Jesus. And so the one that died was Jesus the man, not Jesus God. Now, why did they do these things? You see, there was a, a, a thought, a philosophy of the day called Gnosticism, and it had various different forms. But in essence, what they believed, and it, it gets a lot more complex than this, but in essence, what they believed is that everything that is of spirit is good, and everything that is of matter, material, physical, that which you can touch, taste, see, feel, is bad. So therefore, they said, it's, if God comes to earth, he comes as a spirit that they could accept. But they couldn't accept how God can take on a material form because matter is bad. So God can't come and be God in a human body. That didn't fit their philosophy because that would mean God would become bad and evil. So John writes, and he's trying to convince these believers to not follow this teaching and not go down this path because he believes it fundamentally shifts and changes what we believe about Jesus if we do not believe in the incarnation of Christ. You see, you and I today that subscribe to the Apostles' Creed that believe this, we believe, as Ephesians 2 says, that God took on the form of a man, that Jesus was 100% God, born of a virgin. It was God. But God came to earth, and God took on a human form. And that while Jesus was on this earth, he was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. This is a mystery. This is difficult for us. And, and like we often say about the Trinity, the Trinity is difficult for us to understand because we have nothing to compare it to. We don't have another Trinity. We don't have a Trinity on earth that you can say the Trinity is like that. And so with Jesus, the Son of God that became the Son of Man, God and man both in one, 100% God, 100% man, we don't have another one of that that you can point to and say it's like that. So it's a little bit outside of our understanding, but that's what we believe. That when Jesus walked on this earth, he was really God. With all the wisdom, the power that came with being God. But he was really man. He walked with us as man. 
He felt what men feel. The scripture says he was tempted like us in every way. He had the human emotions. He had, he had the human experience. And that's very important for us to grasp and understand, even though we don't understand how it works, but that we understand that that is who Christ was. You see, because let's say it wasn't the case. Let's say God did not take on human form. How would that change the gospel? How would it fundamentally alter what we believe if Jesus did not come and take on human form? Well, let, let, me, let me illustrate it to you. Let's believe. Imagine, not believe, let's imagine. Jesus was a, just a spirit that came to earth to tell us that God loves us. If he didn't take on human form, that would mean that he would be hovering here among us. He would be present and he would be here with us in some form that we don't quite, it's a bit difficult to describe perhaps, but he's not really here, but he's here. You can't really touch him. You, you can't really feel him when he's standing next to you physically. You can't really sit down and have a meal with him because his spirit, he doesn't eat in that way. You, you can't really experience him putting his hand on you. So when Jesus, if that was Jesus, if Jesus came as a spirit and, and sort of hovered here among us, and he then comes and says, God loves you, it becomes a little bit more abstract. It becomes something that I say, okay, that's great, God loves me, but I can't quite see it, I can't quite feel it, I can't quite touch it, I can't quite have it be real. And you see, that's what every other religion claims. That who, whatever other religion, their God will say, they love you. But you see, what separates us is that when our God says, I love you, you can feel it. Well, at least those disciples that walked with him could feel it. They felt the physical touch of Jesus. They felt his embrace. They walked with him. They saw him every day. They walked the dusty streets with him. They, they were on the boats with him, and he was really there. It wasn't theoretical or spiritual. He was really with them. When they went through the difficult times, he went through it with them, really. Jesus wasn't, you know, remember the time when the boat, when the storm was raging and Jesus was sleeping, he, he was really sleeping. He wasn't a spirit that was sort of there, but not really there. He was fully present. When he stood up and he spoke to the waves and he spoke to the wind to calm down, you could really see his hair blowing in the wind. You can really see the spray on his face because he was really there. So when Jesus said, I love you to Peter, it was real. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, and we just had communion, and when Jesus said to Peter at the Last Supper, you're going to disown me. That was a real conversation. There was some real awkwardness, some real moments there. And how much more real it was later when Jesus, after he had died, resurrected and took on his bodily, his eternal form again. His, his, you know, as, there's a, a sense of the human body, but it's now in its eternal form. 
when he said to Peter, come and sit, let me give you breakfast. It was real. You see, the fact that Jesus took on a human form meant that love became real for us. God really loved us. Before he even created us, he loved us. He loved the human race. He made us because he loved us. His creation was an expression of the love of God. But we fell away from him. We rebelled against him. We, we said we want nothing to do with you, and we carried on. And, but God didn't stop loving us. And, and throughout the Old Testament, he kept saying to us, I love you. I love you. But to make sure that we get the message, to make sure that the love of God becomes not a theory, not some abstract thing that we, that we hope is true or, or believe only to be true, Jesus took on a bodily form and came and walked among us and became the complete, perfect revelation of the love of God. So that now you and I today, when we say God loves you to another person, we can actually point to a day, an historical day, a factual day, a real day, where Jesus really hung on a cross. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. What motivated God to send Jesus to come and walk here and to live among us was his love. It wasn't some other motivation. It wasn't that he was trying to get us in line or, or, or put his workforce, you know, send a labor lawyer and get the, the workforce in line again. Or he sent his son to come and walk among us and to, to say to us, God loves you. You have a father that loves you. And in every way he could, he, he, he tried to show us, to convince us the reality of the love of God. Until that day came, where he, this real man in a real body, not a fake body, with the real God present within this body and this was taken arrested and beaten. His beard, his real beard was really plucked out of his face. His, his back was really severely beaten. A real crown of thorns was stuck on a real head with real blood that started dripping out of it. And this man was taken to a real cross and there he was really tortured. Natasha spoke at the ladies, I think she mentioned this the other day, how, you know, the cross was such a horrendous, method of torture that the Romans chose. They, they, they thought of the most violent way to kill somebody, and that they made their public way of killing people. You know what they were saying when they were doing that? They were telling people, we have the power to do what we want. If you go against us, this is what will happen to you. We have the power to kill you and to embarrass you and to destroy you in any way we can. You dare not stand against us. This symbol of hatred and of power and of authority, of the greatest authority and power at the time, was exacted upon Jesus, and Jesus took that cross upon himself. And he really hung there. He really felt the spasms. He really struggled with his breathing. He went through all of that pain, really. He, he really had the water and the blood separate because of the excruciating pain. This wasn't God saying, theoretically, I love you. This was God saying, I love you, and I will write it in my own blood. This is not us pointing to some belief. This is really what happened. The Muslim person may struggle. They say, how can 
God become man and let men kill him. Then he's not God. He's not powerful. Our Jesus said to this greatest power in our world at that time, come and do your worst on me. I will really take it. And I will transform your hatred into the symbol of my love. So today you and I point to a cross. We don't see the embarrassment. We don't see the shame and the authority and the, and the hatred. We see the love of God. Because it's real. That's the difference it makes. You see, so when these guys were going around and preaching that Jesus didn't really, he wasn't really the son of God, or it, 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 it's not real. They were basically saying it's all in the mind. You see, because their belief system said this, everything that is spirit and of reason and of mind, the metaphysical is good, everything that is material is bad. They were saying this basically, if you want to get saved, it's the only thing you need is to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It doesn't matter if he really was the Son of God. You must just have the insight and the knowledge, receive the special revelation, and believe it, then you will be saved. You're not saved because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You are saved because Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore you believe it. It's a big difference. We're not saved through knowledge. We're saved by grace. Because of what God really did. It's a real thing that really happened. These guys were saying, no, 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 it doesn't matter if it is real or not, as long as you believe it, it's all in the mind. You see, and therefore, because they said it's all in the mind, they could do this neat little trick with their lives where they said, as long as my mind knows the right things and believes the right things, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, it's only what matters in my mind. So these so-called Christian teachers would go around, steal people's money, sleep with everybody they could be, sexually immoral, be bad people in every way, but they said we are God's children because we believe that Jesus was real. They didn't have to practice it. So therefore, John, and we'll, we'll speak about it later, but he takes a firm stance. He says, you know, when one of these false teachers come to your house and they're looking for you to put them up so that they can now speak in your church on Sunday or speak at your life group or somewhere with your friends, have coffee and share this revelation with them, he says, you don't even open the door to them. You don't give them tea. You don't give them coffee. You don't let them charge their cell phone. You chase them away. You have nothing to do with them. Because so dangerous, he says, is this belief that they have. You see, you and I have to understand, if you want to talk about a love revolution, the love revolution began in our world in its fullest form when Jesus came onto the scene as a real man. And when, when he said, I love you, and to make you know that I love you, I'm going to show you how much I love you. And he died as an innocent man on a cross having all life squeezed out of him and beaten out of him. And he died. He, went, he really died. Didn't fake die. He really died. On the third day, he really rose. And he said, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you. You see, so today, when somebody tells me Jesus loves me, I can say, I know, because that happened. It's not a theory. It's not somebody's claim I can actually point to a day in history and say, it really happened. Jesus loves me. Do you know that Jesus loves you? And from that moment, 
the love of God that's always been present in our world, but, but hidden in a way because we couldn't understand it, was fully revealed through the sonship of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And that started this love revolution in our world. That those few people that were around Jesus that actually felt him, that saw him literally feed the 5,000. It, it wasn't a, 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 a sham feeding. People felt full. They were really full. They didn't feel like they had, uh, you know, bread and fish. They had real bread and fish because Jesus really multiplied it. When, when they walked with Jesus and they saw Jesus really heal the sick, you know, when he really raised the dead, those people said, I know God loves me. I know it, that I know it, that I know it, and nobody can tell me different. So when Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them, they couldn't help but tell other people, Jesus loves you. God loves you. And if, you're not, if you don't know, let me tell you about Jesus and what he did for you. It's real, man. It's real. And that story, that, that, their, their testimonies, their account of what happened, not only what Jesus did, but what it did in their life, began this revolution that moved throughout the world at that time, slowly at first, but then it started moving and multiplying and started pushing to the corners of the earth. And today still that revolution is going on as those of us that have firsthand experienced the love of God and knows the real love of God can say, I know God loves me. Let me tell you about the love of God. It's not all in my mind. It's not fanciful imagination. It's not a nice story I've made up just to make life bearable. It's real. Because it really happened. And I can tell you the real stories of my life. And what's really going on in my life. I'm not perfect. I haven't got it all together. But I can tell you Jesus loves me. And everywhere we go, we keep pushing the gospel. To the unreached people groups in our world, we, we push the gospel. We want people, every person on this planet to know Jesus loves you. To the unreached places in our own communities, we take the gospel. Do you know that right here among us in our city, there are unreached places where the gospel has not taken root. We see it through the violence, the hatred, the anger, the poverty, the corruption. There's unreached places right here among us where you and I get to go and say, Jesus loves us. This is not the way that we're supposed to live. Jesus loves us. There's more. Jesus loves us, and it's real. You see, and if the story is not real for us, if we not really experience it, it may be difficult for us to tell others because then we may think in our own lives, it's just in my mind. But how many of you know it's real? It's the real love of God. Now I want to read with you 1 John 4 from verse 7 to 12. I wanted to tell you all of that because if we now read 1 John 4, perhaps you'll start making the connections why John is harping and emphasizing certain things. Let's read 1 John 4 verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. He's saying, no, Jesus really came and really loved us. And that love is real because God is love. God doesn't have a capacity to love. He is love. Everything he does is loving. When God judges, he judges with love. When God disciplines, he disciplines with love. God cannot move in and out of love. He does everything because he is love. And because he is love, wherever he is, he loves But love is not the only thing that God is described as being in his essence. When we say God is love, we're saying his nature, his essence, it is who he is. He is love. It's not a characteristic. It is who he is. There's three other things that the New Testament tells us God is. God is love. God is spirit. God is light. And God is a consuming fire. Those four things. The scripture tells us these are the four things that reveal, uh, there may be more, but, we don't, but the scripture reveals to us these four natural essence of who God is. God is love, God is spirit, God is light, and God is a consuming fire. And when I see all of those things in Jesus and see that practiced in love, It transforms my whole being. You see, because as God is love, God is holy. That's his consuming fire. That's his light. You see, when we use the word love in our world today, and I've spoken about this before, we we seem seem to mean some abstract word. Some word that, that sounds more like a positive feeling towards other people. Some word that describes a sentimentality towards one another. Some word that is this, this word that tries to capture something of, oh, may we all just get along peace on earth. Some word that tries to say, man, if we just learn to tolerate each other. That's, that's, I don't know how to capture it, but when we use the word love today, we, it sounds something like that. That's not what the word love means when God uses that word. When God says, I love you, he says, I unconditionally, sacrificially love you. And nothing will stop me from loving you. Even your own bad behavior will not stop me from loving you. I unconditionally love you and I will do whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice is needed to make you sure that you know that I love you. That's the love of God. God loves you so much that he's prepared to get into your face. God squares you up every now and then and says, I love you, and therefore you and I have to talk to each other. You cannot carry on doing that. That is not love. Because if everything is love, then nothing is love. Love has to, by nature, include some things and exclude other things. And God says, I love you. And so when God says, I love you, and he sends Jesus to come and die for us, it's the greatest loving act because he didn't just say, I love you. He said, I love you, and whatever is keeping you away from me, I'm going to take care of it. 
I'm gonna remove the obstacles. I'm gonna get you out of prison. That which has captured and caught you so that you cannot respond to my love, I'm gonna remove it and therefore Jesus has to die on the cross to deal with our sin, the rebellion, the anger that's in us so that we can be set free to love him. You see, this is how it works. This God is spirit. So spirit comes and takes on the human form so that the light of God, who he is, can shine on us. Have you ever had the light of God shine on you? Read Psalm 32, read Psalm 51. David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, your hand is heavy upon me. The light of God was shining on him. It's fantastic when the light of God shines on you. You see your full failures, your brokenness, your sinfulness gets exposed. It feels horrible, but yet it is what some of the most loving things that God does for us is when he shines the light on us. When he shines himself on us and his standards on us and he says, <laughs> you're not like me. So that we go, okay. And when we repent, when we let the light shine on us, and yes, for a while, it'll cause us to feel guilt and shame and embarrassment, and it's horrible to feel that. But it's not because God wants to embarrass us or make us ashamed that he shines the light on us. It's so that we can say, Lord, forgive me. Thank you that Jesus has removed the shame and guilt from me, and I ask you to restore me. Then he comes as a consuming fire, and he burns the sin. And he consumes. But this is the amazing thing. Because not only is he spirit, not only is he light, not only is he the consuming fire, but he is love. Therefore, he can shine the light on me. He can burn my sin, but he does not burn me because he loves me. Imagine if God was only the light and the fire. He would shine the light on you, burn the sin, and nothing of you would be left. But because he loves you, it's this fantastic thing that God can burn the sin out of my life, this consuming fire through the blood of Christ. But I come out the other end looking beautiful, restored, renewed, because he loves me. He loves us. He loves this world. He loves you. And he calls us. So when John writes and he says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born in God and knows God. He's, he's just saying this. He says, look, if you have had the light of God shine upon you, and you have had the Spirit of God through the, you know, come and be the consuming fire that removes the sin from your life, and you've experienced the love of God, then the love of God will start flowing through you, and like we needed the love of God to become real and take on the bodily form of Christ, then now today we become the body of Christ that shows the love of God in this world. That love is real. You see, that because we live in a world, we, we, people don't see Jesus. He says here, whoever does not love God does, know God does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He showed his love. He sent Jesus. But the people of this world can't see Jesus, but they can see us. Not because we're perfect, but because we keep saying, man, the God, Jesus loves me. And that's changing my life. Every day it's transforming me. The more and more I get to understand and submit to the love of God, the more I'm changing and the more that love becomes real and other people can now feel and, and, and experience the love of God. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that you and I get to be in that position where we share the love of God. We become love that is real in this world. 
Again, not because of us, and, and we'll talk about it next week. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and he, he makes Jesus known to us, and he transforms us. And the love of God becomes real. And it becomes the greatest change agent the world has ever seen. You see, we can have all the technological breakthroughs. We can have all the discoveries we want. None of that can deal with our guilt and our shame. There's no app that can deal with your guilt and your shame. There's not even an app that can deal with your loneliness. There's not an app that can tell you who you really are. There's not an app that can make you understand how far you've fallen from God's original plan, how beautiful you really are. There's nothing like that. But when you come to the Lord Jesus and you see the scars and you see his love for you and he puts his arms around you and he says, I love you. It fundamentally shakes everything we are and changes us. And it's that love revolution that is God's kingdom, hearts, homes, and beyond. That is busy changing the world. And we want in our generation, in our time, to make sure that revolution is going strong and going far and going near and going deep and going wide, but that it is running. This love revolution is real. Let me read you a story and then I'm ending. The story comes from an article in a Christian Christianity Today magazine. Casey Diaz was a gang member from South Central LA, convicted and sentenced to nearly 13 years for second degree murder, and along with 52 counts of armed robbery. And he says it's, it's amazing that those are the only things they caught him for. But he was finally convicted, and uh, when he was now awaiting trial, and in that process, you know, when they put them in jail, he was in a jail for a period of time, and in that period of time when he was in the jail, he became what is called the shot caller. So he would literally be the guy in the jail that if some gang wants to kill another person from another gang, they have to get permission from him. And he would be the one that would keep all the shanks. He said he had up to 13 shanks under his mattress. You know what a shank is? It's when they take a toothbrush or something or a spoon and they shape it into a knife that they can stab somebody with. And he would be the person, literally, that if you wanted to kill somebody, you had to go to him, and he would give you permission, and he would provide you the shank, and you would go and kill somebody and then bring the shank back. That was his job as the shot caller. So when he was finally now found guilty and sentenced and taken to the prison where he was supposed to spend the rest, you know, the, the, his prison term, they put him in solitary confinement because they said, we cannot risk you in, 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 in the general population because you've caused too many murders already. So they put him in solitary confinement in this jail, in this prison, which meant he had a, a, a little bit of time every day where he'd go outside, but with nobody else, and the rest of the time he spent in his cell, all on his own. He tells this story. One time I was lying on my bed, listening to the voices outside. I heard an older woman say, is there someone in that cell? She sounded sudden and spoke with a syrupy drawl. Yes, ma'am, the guard said, but you don't want to deal with Diaz. You're wasting your time. Well, she answered, Jesus came for him too. She approached the cell. Young man, can I speak with you? Looking through the open slot in my gate. I couldn't see anything except for the guard's boots and a pair of spindly legs. How are you doing? She asked. I couldn't be better, came my sarcastic reply. Young man, she said, I'm going to pray for you, but there's something else I want to tell you. Jesus is going to use you. By now I was certain she was crazy. Couldn't she see I was locked away in a solitary confinement? I don't think that's going to happen, I said, but she persisted. Young man, every time I'm here, I'm going to come by and remind you that Jesus is going to use you. A year or so later, I was lying down in my cell. 
daydreaming when I turned toward the wall opposite my bed. On that wall, something strange was happening. A movie was playing, a movie about my life. I saw myself as a young child walking the the old neighborhood at 9th and Kenmore. I witnessed incidents from my early days with the gang, everything in in picture-perfect detail. Then I saw a bearded man with a long hair carrying a cross. As he trudged along, a mob of angry people shouted at him. When he arrived on the top of a knoll, rough-looking men nailed his hands and feet to the wooden beams and raised the cross so it stood between two other men on, on crosses. What got me the most was when this man looked at me and said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. I shuddered. Apart from the guards and my family, no one knew my real name. Everyone called me Casey, my nickname for as long as I could remember. Then I heard the sound of breath leaving him. At that moment, I knew he had died. That's when I hit the floor in the middle of the cell. I started weeping because I knew somehow that this was Almighty God. Even though I didn't understand what he had done for me, after hitting the floor, I knew I had to get on my knees. I started confessing my sins. God, I'm sorry for stabbing so many people. God, I'm sorry I robbed so many families. With each new confession, I felt another weight come off my shoulders. When I finished, I knew something major had happened. I asked to see a chaplain who opened his Bible and explained who Jesus was and told me that I, was ex- that I had experienced in that cell what was called salvation. He handed me a Bible and urged me to start reading. I spent five or six hours reading that Bible, then fell asleep, woke up and do some push-ups and exercises before picking up where I had left off. I didn't understand half of what I was reading, but that didn't bother me. That was the start of my journey of faith. Eventually, I was released from solitary confinement and returned into the mainline prison population where I was beaten for being a Christian and turning my back on fellow gang members. But I was okay with that because I was no longer a shot caller. I had found a new calling, telling others, inmates, about Jesus. And Jesus was using me. That's not a nice story. That's not an encouraging story sort of little episode that's real and that can be real because Jesus is real and he really loves us most of us in this room would have a real testimony of how the love of God has been known to us I may not have been a shot caller but I had my own stuff that Jesus has to deal with and continue to deal with but you know the thing that transforms us is the love of God is that when we look at him and we see the way he looks at us, it tells us there's something beautiful in us. There's something valuable about us. No matter how far I've strayed from it, no matter how ugly I've become, he sees the beauty in me. And it stirs something in me. And when he comes and he says, I want to make you new. And he says, I did that for you. So that you can really be forgiven and your sins can really be dealt with and you can really become free from them so that you can really love other people it changes my life worship team you guys can join we are in a love revolution it's busy happening it's happened in your life it's happened in my life and it's continued to happen all around us it's happening in our church here right now it's happening in our community There's so many fantastic stories that people can tell you just of the last month or two that God has met Jesus and the love of Jesus through people in our community and here in our community. We're part of a love revolution. And all we need to do to be part of that is just to say, Lord, love me. 
Because John says it's not that we love her, but it's that God loved us and that we can respond. The love you and I can have for the people around us, the, even our enemies, the people of this world, the, the people we struggle with, when it's that love that is not this love of this world, this positive let's tolerate one another nonsense, but this love of sacrificial, agape, unconditional love. If we have, that have received that love can Ask the Holy Spirit to help us love in this world in that way. This love revolution will grow strong in our midst. Can I ask you to stand with me? This morning as we take people through the waters of baptism, this is what they're saying. They're just proclaiming that I have realized that God loves me. I don't want to live without Him. I die to myself so I can live with Christ. I can live in the love of Christ. Join us as we go for the baptism. We'll have some people available here for prayer as we end the service. If you have never yielded to the love of Jesus, if you've not come and said, Lord, thank you that you died for me. Thank you that I can be changed, really changed. It's not in my mind, it's real. And I'm going to invite you to come to the front and there will be people here that will pray for you. We're not going to have as many people as we normally do, but we'll get to you. But can we just pray together? Father, I thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Your love is real. Thank you that you love me. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I don't deserve your love, but yet you love me. Do you really love me? I thank you that you really love the people in our city. That your love is real. Lord, we pray for a continued outpouring of your love so that this love revolution, Lord, will continue to spread. We'll continue to break boundaries. We'll continue to include people. Come, Holy Spirit. Empower us as your people. Empower us to receive the love of God, to know the love of God, and then to go and share the love of God. Come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. Thank you for your presence right here with us in this moment. The Lord's been so present in our service. And it's fantastic. But you know when you go, His presence goes with you. Because He loves you. Come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. There's just right in this moment, there's just the Lord's presence, just the outpouring of His love happening. And I, I don't want us to just move on. Will you just receive the love of God? His real love for you. There's nothing you can think of now that can disqualify you. I'm not saying things that you've done is not really bad. It may, you may need to really do some things and really change things and make up for it and and, and really repent and say sorry to people and find ways to restore what you've done. And you really need to stop doing some things. But none of that disqualifies you from the love of God.
The only way you can change and be different is because you know He loves you. Be transformed by His love. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for us that believe in you, that know this truth. That we would find opportunities to tell people Jesus loves them and it's real. Help us to share the love of Jesus in actions, in words, in whatever we do. Let us love this world and let us love one another. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May the Lord be with you as you go. May His presence surround you. May you consistently hear this week in some way or another if you forget. God really loves you. And it's real. Please join us if you can at the, at the swimming pool as we do the baptism. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you through the week where if you engage with us in any way or otherwise we'll see you next Sunday. The Lord bless you. If you want prayer, please come to the front and those of us that can, some of our people will be here to pray with you. Don't miss this opportunity.